Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Brian Goff and Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Hi, you two. Hello. Happy Monday. Summertime. I am going to sing the praises of vacation for a moment. You know, I was never one of those people that like even took my vacation time. And this last um, week, I absolutely needed it after a week in the hospital with my daughter. And I had the kind of experience that I'm sure most people actually take where they do nothing. I just let my brain sort of offload. And I swear to God, I could feel the DNA coming back. (laughs) It's almost like I was repurposing my brain. You You know, know, for me, at least when I go on vacations, it takes me a couple of days to sort of slow my metabolism. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit my mental metabolism. (laughs) And then like the last day I start thinking about what I'm coming back to. So I get like on a week's vacation, I feel like I get about four. Day and a half. (laughs) Yeah, right. Just like a few sweet days in there. Like, oh, God, this is what it feels like to put everything down. But we were talking about this, Jenna, about how do we as human beings begin to weave in these mini breaks for our brains? Right, yeah. And as part of my dedicated attention to holding on to some of the vacation vibe, I am going to increase the amount of meditation I do from 15 minutes to 30 because I honestly think I got a little like, okay, now it's time to meditate. Okay, ding, the meditation is over. (laughs) I thought you were were just going to like commit to a daily diet of Mai Tais and uh, chocolate-covered macadamia nuts. (laughs) I would be 370 pounds, but, you know, uh, wouldn't really matter. Okay. I'd still be happy, right? This morning, that's so funny because this morning, during meditation, I must not have um, been super mindful because, like, it, uh, we always meditate for 30 minutes, and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's got to have been 30 minutes. has to have been 30 <laughs> minutes. And finally, I said to my partner, I was like, Jason, I think your phone isn't working. It's not working. He's <laughs> like... You still have two minutes. <laughs> the longest two minutes. It was the um, longest 30 minutes yeah, of meditation ever I know. today. I don't it, know what was happening. But it's happening. Like, like in soccer, it, though. It's like stoppage time. It, 10 it, seconds. It was. Because Jenna it like, was. killed my buzz. Yeah. It was. I'm like, it can oh, feel like that. I feel like I needed to restart my 30 minutes. I do, though, <laughs> um, just believe that um, I looked at my phone and my screen time was down by 65%, which oh, I think was part of the reason good. that... Well, I actually helped my brain a little bit. And um, my happiness index, I swear, was like up 75%. So there's some correlation there. Absolutely. And partly the reason I wanted to come back was because I was so excited to meet Sharma Shield. Oh, thank you, Sheila. Honestly, um, so so I didn't know anything about you. Our our past intern, Ari, was the person who turned me on to your writing. Your book, Favorite Monster, The Sasquatch Hunter's Almanac, and now The Cassandra is generating a ton of buzz in Portland. And I think you probably write for a generation of young readers. And that's the reason that Pals is going to be sold out tonight. So welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, First of all, you live in Washington. And so your obsession with Sasquatch is normal, correct? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) It's, It's like a mythical beast that is sort of back in Indian lore and in fishing lore and in a lot of people's imaginations from the region where you where you live. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a part of indigenous lore and with the Spokane and Colville tribes uh, since long before white settlers came to the area. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have been writing about mythological creatures for a really long time. Uh, my story collection, favorite monster, has 
you know, a Cyclops working at a PR uh, firm in Seattle and, you know, Medusa growing up next door to someone uh, in Spokane. And so I was finding that I was both setting stories locally within the inland Northwest, um, but then also they had this mythological edge. So when I started looking into uh, writing a novel, I thought I wanted to bring that mythology a little bit closer to home. Yeah. And that's where kind of I started researching Sasquatch and researching uh, cryptozoologists who were interested in Sasquatch uh, around the Spokane area. And really the book came from that. But also it's more than a book about Sasquatch. It's it's a family drama and it's very much based on uh, my own interpersonal relationships with uh, my family. Yeah. yeah. Wait. Sasquatch is uh, mythical. <laughs> you don't write about the Loch Ness monster, do you? <laughs> it's, it's really disappointing yeah, really. for me. He's well, gonna... you know, I, I think that's a good thing to say that you know it may not be uh, mythical. Um, it could just be sneaky, yeah, just a yeah. sneaky little son of a. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Cassandra is a book about a woman and um, her fate. And her story is so dark. It is. And yes. I, you come in and you're like one of the sunniest, most beautiful, <laughs> cheery women ever. And I was like, how the heck do you get to such a dark place? Yeah. Well, I, I will say that um, I do appear as a very smiley, upbeat, uh, optimistic person. Um, but that really is not at all who I am uh, on the inside. And I, I think I do expend quite a lot of energy um, putting that really sunny persona on. I wear it almost like a mask. And I've done that my whole life in some ways. Um, But I have always been attracted to darkness. I think one reason I loved Greek uh, mythology as a girl was because I loved how dark the endings were. Um, They were not a Disney-style ending. They frequently, uh, heroes would succeed, but then the story would follow it through to the end where um, they would die miserable and alone. And that seemed really truthful to me as a girl. Um, And, you know, when when I started writing the Cassandra, um, I, I was thinking about my multiple sclerosis, which I was diagnosed with about six years ago. Um, and a lot of people in the Spokane area had said to me, well, we have a really high incidence of MS in our region, uh, because we're downwind of Hanford. Um, and I had been thinking about writing a really dark book, uh, not unlike Mary Shelley. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I thought, oh, well, I've been looking wow. for a setting. Hanford would be perfect for that. Um, but of course, when I started researching Hanford, um, I became really interested in some of the disturbing things that I read about Hanford, particularly when it was being created in 1944 and 1945, when the majority of the workforce had no idea what, what they, they were, were doing, what they were yeah. making there. Um, they knew it was for the war effort. Um, they knew that it had it held some sort of promise of being the thing that could change the outcome of the war, um, but they were otherwise unaware that what they were creating was a weapon of mass destruction that mm. was going to um, kill two hundred thousand more people in Japan, right. um, and then also cause a lot of pollution and um, and strange. Uh, Fish you know, birth defects in the water. and everything yeah, within, exactly. the, within the inland northwest area. Uh, Jenna, I want to uh, talk about um, embracing your dark side. 
I think yeah. it's fascinating that you can have somebody who, like Sharma who can be in the world like this and then not only acknowledges this dark shadow, but actually goes into it for art and for purpose and to actually say something. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that is a really important lesson for us all to learn. We sort of have these ideas that there's this one story of us. Oh, I'm like this. I'm this kind of person. And we can kind of turn ourselves into these caricatures, you know, oh, I'm the bright, sunny, happy person or I'm the whatever. And humans are such complicated critters. Like none of us (laughs) is this caricature. And so when we are able to explore and be curious about without judgment, all these different aspects of ourselves, we can learn so much from it. Um, And, you know, one of the ways I think about this is, you know, the word integrity or living with integrity Integrity means wholeness. Mm. And so when I think about living a life of integrity, it means living your whole self, the the dark side, the bright, shiny side, <laughs> the, the side that's kind of flat. And that, to me, is part of what kind of having a life of integrity means. Yeah. yeah when, when Sharma is speaking to so many young people and there's already so much agitation, fear, paranoia about what's happening in the environment. How do you want your readers, and then I'd like you guys to respond, how do we take all of this information about how difficult it is right now to be a human in this world Mm -hmm. and go forward in a way that's still positive and hopefully fruitful? Well, I I think a lot about when I think about my novel, The Cassandra in particular, um, and how dark of a book it is. Sometimes I feel like I, I really did write that dark because I do care deeply for humanity. Yeah. I care for our environment. Um, and I I wrote the book almost uh, with the idea that it would grab onto people's shoulders and kind of shake them mm. and make them understand that for me, I think becoming a better human, um, and I loved what you said about integrity, um, I think becoming a better human involves uh, assessing um, the ways in which we have uh, hurt others, uh, both interpersonally and, uh, you know, on a more global political level, um, and hurt ourselves as well. And how can we use those um, sort of those grievous faults against one another uh, to make ourselves better people, um, kinder people, more open-hearted people, um, and evolve into something healthier, um, that sounds really ambitious, I guess, for it a novel ambitious. to do. It is ambitious, and um, I haven't read the book, so do you step your character through that process of redemption? Uh, I, I do believe that she comes out uh, with an idea of redemption toward the end, but she is shaken to her core. As we um, all are. And she, is de- <laughs> she deals with a very hefty amount of trauma, um, and uh, a man who... Uh, assaults her and she ends up assaulting someone as well. Um, So she is, she is both, um, I think the victim of a predator and becomes uh, a predator. Not an unusual story either. Yeah. So, um, and, and a lot of the book was about how the harms we enact. um, A lot of times after we absorb them, we turn around and do the harming to someone else. No kidding. Um, Brian, speak to that idea because of um, 
I, I talked to so many kids who are so freaked out about the environment, what's happening to our country, that they don't really even want to participate in building a life for themselves. They're just, there. there's a, a feeling of nihilism. Yeah, like the problems are so huge. What can I do about it? Yeah. I can't get any traction. The story, it's, it's, it's a well-worn story, but the... The person who sees a whole bunch of starfish that have washed up on the beach, um, as far as they can see, you know, 100,000 of them or whatever, and they're out there picking up a starfish and tossing it back in the water, and somebody comes and says, why are you bothering to do this? You will not be able to save all of them. Mm. And he picks the next starfish up and says, do you think this one cares? Oh, wow, that's right. a great story. Like, it, and it's this, like so many of the problems that we're confronted with in this world on the environmental level, which just seems enormous, uh, and then you know nationally, some of the things that are going on here in America are so beyond my reach and beyond my pay grade. But what I can pay attention to is noticing how I feel when I see those things and letting that inform me about how I want to move around in the world mm-hmm. and interact with the people that I get to interact with. Um, I mean, it may say it may seem simplistic, but how I move around in the world and behave and treat other people is the thing that is within um, my reach. Yeah. And the other thing, Sharma, that you were saying that I was appreciating was we can have this tendency, and we've talked about this in other places in the podcast, we can have this tendency to sort of look at other as, oh, they're the perpetrator, bad one, dark source, something like that. And it's completely separate from me. Like you're absolving yourself of all responsibility. Mm -hmm. But when you can turn inward and explore those parts of you, how you have hurt others, how you have contributed to whatever the harm is, um, I think in that lies the hope. Right. Yes, I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, you are n- not just you, like you're so multifaceted in terms of the things that you have on your plate. Mother of two, right? Mm-hmm. You're uh, dealing with MS. Uh, former addict, correct? That's right. Yep. And I've been you sober about six, seven years now. Yeah. You are so open with all of these. Walk me through the process about why you decided to share your whole self as mother, author. MS, survivor, all of the things that you are? Well, I have to say, I I was asked recently, um, I gave a a discussion at a place in Spokane called Spark Central, and they do this taproot speaker um, presentation, and they asked me to come and talk. And basically, at the taproot, you tell people kind of your life story. And so I, I talked about all of that. I talked about my MS. I talked about... Um, my drinking and how my last night of drinking, I was blacked out, uh, driving drunk with my kids in the car. Mm. Um, and you know, which is still like one of the most horrifying things to admit to myself, let alone talk about. Mm. Um, and I talked about, um, this, I, I got in a lot of trouble when I was 17 years of age and Ended up lying to quite a few people, um, including reporters and cops and the like, and ended up in this public shaming thing because of it. Um, And so I I talked about all of that really openly. And then someone at the end raised her hand and said, how are you able to be so vulnerable Mm -hmm. in front of all of us? Um, And I told her I I don't I'm not interested in really being 
um, the opposite of vulnerable. I really want to um, open myself up to people because I I really do want to live with what I've done very openly and honestly, not just because I believe I can become a healthier, better person. I also find it really fascinating and interesting, um, which I think is maybe the writer in me a little bit. Like Objectively, I, I, <laughs> I have a great story. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's awesome. And I, and I also know um, there's a lot of uh, younger women who are writers uh, and younger men, too, um, or even women my own age and older who come to my readings and are just getting started maybe submitting their short stories. Um, and I know, like me, they may seem very smiley and happy and successful, um, but I think a lot of us are struggling with depression. And so I, I'm open with people about I see a therapist. I have had to be on antidepressants. I've, you know— I need to make sure that I exercise as much as I can because um, if I don't, I can feel myself slipping. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, I, I still have panic attacks every now and then, and I still feel like I'm learning about myself yeah. and learning mm -hmm. uh, about my darkness. And I'm sure there are certain things uh, that I need to work on and improve that I haven't even... Um, seen yet, but I do find it exciting to get to know myself in this way. Yeah. Um, and I probably do plumb my own faults quite a lot when I'm writing characters because yeah. I want them to seem very alive on the page and vulnerable too, because I think, um, I don't know, stoicism and, uh, you know, uh, perfectionism are completely boring to me. Uh -huh. I'm yeah. just not interested. Yeah, in we're those. not stories that are like, yeah, everything I'm really good at. Um, uh -huh. I'm sort of just, I just win. I'm and just I'm winning. Just, I just keep yeah. winning. Tired. And it's like everything Life I touch turns to gold. That, like, sounds so like, easy. that sounds like our president. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, it's really true. But generally, it's like we don't, we're not really interested in those stories. No. I don't really like that person very much. No. And when the person, when the person, asks you how do you be so vulnerable how do you how do you just like come here and admit to all of that stuff i don't hear that as a holier than thou question like how dare you show your no face. i don't think it's she more meant like, it that way how do you do that because i'd I like to be do able that. to do that mm. yeah I mean, shame is one of the fundamental human emotions and shame drives us to hide and the antidote is here i am yeah I mean, we hide from ourselves. We hide from the people that we love and who ostensibly love us, although they love us for who we show ourselves to be, maybe not so much for all the other parts. And we want that, right? But we're not going to have intimacy and acceptance if we aren't vulnerable. Yeah. Well, your way of talking about that is, is really inspiring to me. You talk about that you're still learning about yourself and you talk about getting to know in this way, like as if you were meeting this person, <laughs> this friend, this person who you really wanted to like, Oh, I want to get to know you more. I want to learn more about you versus the way that so often we're told to like, you got to figure yourself out. You got to fix yourself. You got to fix it. Like we problem solve ourselves. Yeah. And what a terror. Like, could you imagine hanging out with somebody all day who was just trying to like solve the problem of yeah. you? <laughs> right. It'd be terrible. Right. I often, right? I've said in the past to, to 
that's to some of my clients, you know, chief among the problems that you have is that you think you have so many problems. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Versus simply it's it's not a matter of, oh, I have nothing I struggle with or nothing, you know, that, you know, whatever I've done wrong. It's simply a, your posture is oh, I want to learn more about this so that then I can move forward rather than I got to fix it. I got to do it right and better. And um, and isn't that yeah, cool? No. Because if you take that approach, then the whole like becoming better right. is really like kind of almost like stop trying to become better right. and, just, <laughs> yeah. right. and just be yeah. like, well, this is who I am. Yeah. And I and I'm not pursuing these things so that I can finally be worthy or finally be a better human, but just so that I can live life in a way that I enjoy more. Yeah. Yeah. It's more meaningful. So I want to come back to something Sharma said that really resonated with me when she said, there's this memory I have of me driving drunk with my two kids in the back of the car. And I think anyone who's ever parented has that moment. Mine was, I was getting my daughter ready for a walk and she was in the stroller And I went into the thing where we keep the water bottles, and she had pushed back from the stroller and was headed down our driveway backwards. Wow. And she would have smashed into a truck if not from my neighbor who was fixing his bike and flew himself in front of the stroller and Mm -hmm. stopped her. I still have the experience of that memory. It's visceral. It comes up. And I am shaken for hours afterwards. How do you cope with the things that you did, the mistakes that you made, where you were when you're still trying to get to know yourself and be more accepting of yourself today? Walk me through your process, and then I'd like to have you guys talk about how you help clients deal with those almost, I'm going to put shame around it for me. Yeah. Like, what the hell was I doing? Right. Well, um, I mean, I've had issues with drinking. The very first time I ever drank, I blacked out. Um, and horrifyingly, I don't have a memory of it, uh, driving home with my kids in the car because I was blacked out, but I have the memory of waking up in the morning. Um, my husband, I could tell was extremely disappointed. I was so sick that I spent the entire day in the bathroom. Um, and just, I think was feeling such an intense amount of self-hatred as I was getting sick over and over again. Mm. Um, and that that disgust and self-hatred was such a major part of my life as I was drinking mm. because um, no matter what I did, sometimes I would take a break for three months from drinking to try to get a hold of it, or I would, I would tell myself, I'm only going to drink one day this week, or I would tell myself, I'm only going to have two beers, you know, um, and I, but I could never stick to those things that I would um, promise myself I would do because once I took a sip of alcohol, all my inhibitions were out the window and I just didn't care anymore. Um, I think I really gunned for the blacking out because it was a way to silence my mind. I have a very active mind mm. that is very self-critical. Um, and anyone who reads my books know that knows that that criticism is there with my characters too. I mean, they're all, um, trying, they're all deeply flawed and they're all trying to figure themselves out in their books. Um, and I think honestly, the most cathartic thing has been that I quit. Um, Hmm. that when I, when I go down a road of how could I do this to my own children who I cherish and love more than anything, um, I think, well, 
but you stopped. <laughs> that was the moment when you stopped. You finally, it, because it seemed like it didn't matter how much I hurt myself with mm. the drinking, um, but it really did matter that I had involved them. Um, and sometimes I still marvel over how much I must love them. I mean, this unconditional, mm -hmm. wild, uh, interplanetary amount that I love them that mm -hmm. actually was the motivating factor in my finally quitting drinking, which wow. had been such a problem for so long. But honestly, I think sometimes I'm extremely awkward and uh, not at all graceful with um, being kind to myself. Um, I, I still can get into uh, horrible um, self-talk and uh, getting down on myself really easily. And, and a lot of that happens, and maybe some of you can talk about some of this, because I've been curious about how some of that happens, especially when I look back, when I think about awful yeah. memories. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I pick up all of the times that I wronged somebody um, or that I let myself down by how I uh, mistreated somebody. Or, and I, I, I lump them all together, and I'm like, here's the evidence that I am this terrible person. Oh, wow. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, Go. <laughs> <laughs> Fix me. Just <laughs> well, I think you're the only person that struggles with self-criticism. Yeah. So that's unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just because you're a bad person. Right. It must be. I knew it. it must I knew yeah, it. there we are. No, I, like, actually... I was, you know, Sheila said, well, then you guys are going to speak to it. So my mind is starting to click on, okay, what am I going to say? And as I'm listening to your response to facing what you had done, you're checking off these things that I'm thinking of. Like, you know, we hurt about the things that we care about. So your guilt and your shame over this act informs how much you love your kids because if you didn't care so much about taking care of them what happened um wouldn't bother you as much right, right? yeah uh, and then also i think to a degree i mean from an evolutionary standpoint our emotions are around to to help us out the f the function of guilt is to get our behavior back in line with what we care about not what's right and what's wrong, but what we care about, well, our values, right? Mm -hmm. And so you said the most productive thing that I did was I, I quit, yeah. you know? And then it's like, okay, my emotional response to what happened uh, has served its purpose. I've got myself back in line with, I've got myself facing in the direction of my values, mm. and I can go ahead and put this down. The problem is, is that the mind likes to tell stories and it <laughs> hangs on to those stories like like forever. Mm, yeah. And and at least for me, the stories that I have about myself, when when I uh, handpick bits of my life that confirm my story, I'm like, see, yes. And yeah. then when a few other bits of my life sort of sneak in there that counter the story, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. they're not yeah. as important. They're, that yeah. didn't count. Yeah. Anybody yeah. would yes. have done that. Yeah. Yeah. Blind that squirrel found a nut. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? And yeah. it's like we're not really being fair assessors of, of any of that, right? Um, the stories are just really, really old. And at least from the perspective that Jenna and I work, people spend so much time, um, and I want to say this uh, – respectfully but i mean people spend so much time staring at their navels trying to like rewrite the stories and then because we're not perfect people 
Um, we go about life. We do some things that don't really fit how we want to be living. And the story snaps right back like it never went away. Like, see? And it's more about um, seeing the story as a story that mm. we tell ourselves than trying to muck around with the content mm. and convince ourselves that, no, 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 that's all completely wrong and I'm a wonderful person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, one of the interesting relationships between self-criticism and shame, um, and this is actually an area we do research around at our clinic, so it's something I'm super interested in. One of the theories is is that shame serves, or sorry, self-criticism serves the function of trying to protect us from shame. So it's sort of the mind's way of if I can just beat myself up enough, then I won't uh, do the thing again that is so shameful mm. because shame is um, probably the most painful human emotion that we feel. It's this very, very visceral, we will get kicked out of the tribe if we, f if uh, like that's where shame evolutionary comes mm -hmm. from, yeah. we think. And so self-criticism is like your mind's really not so helpful, but like well-intentioned attempt of like, I'm just going to keep reminding you of how terrible you felt <laughs> when you did all these things. So you don't do, so you don't do them again. Yeah. Yeah. And what we try and do is actually help people like be willing to feel the shame so that the self-criticism can kind of like subside. There's no function for it anymore. And then you get to choose how you want to be, not because you're beating yourself up, but because that's the kind of mom you want to be. Yeah. You just, mm -hmm. yeah. Can I interject yeah. though, mm -hmm. that when you, and when you allow yourself to feel the shame, it's feeling it and, and having those thoughts show up, um, as they are, not as yes. they say they yes. are. Yes, thanks, yeah. Brian. It isn't Perfect. so much like sitting here yeah. and being like, I just have to really come to terms with right. I'm a piece of shit. No. <laughs> no, that's the self-criticism. That's the self-criticism. I'm a piece of shit. So let's go yeah, through yeah. what is the what is the yeah. function? Are you asking people to be in their body and actually just feel that the memories evoking the, that that night yeah. that she's going through everything, she feels it all the way through her body? What are you doing functionally well, this, in the room? I mean, this is the difference between... I don't know if this is right on on point, but this is the difference between having a good self-esteem, like I'm a wonderful person, I'm a good person, um, and self-compassion. Right, right, yeah. So, like, being able to sit with the shame, like, as, as a clinician, of course I would never want to shame my clients. But if my clients are feeling shame, then what I want them to be able to do is to feel their experience from a place of compassion and a place of like, oh, mm. that is so painful to feel like I did something that was that like really risked the things that were most important mm. to me. Right. Yeah. And from this from a place of kind of like you said, learning about yourself versus judging and harshing yourself about it. And then from that place, from this de-blaming platform then we can start making better choices about the kinds of life you would choose to live yes. versus, oh my gosh, if you, st because that's the problem with self-criticism, right? Like many people feel like, oh, if I let go of my self-criticism, I'm just going to go to hell in a handbasket and yeah. do yeah. all these terrible right. things, well, it's, right? It, it's interesting because my, uh, when I talk to my therapist, the work we do repeatedly over and over is her asking me to to feel things without yeah, judgment, to exactly. sit, to sit and feel. And I have to right. say, 
even after being in therapy for so many years, I I have a really hard time of letting go because sure. I do think um, I'm not quite sure how to not like intellectualize yeah. um, that shame because yeah. I am terrified to feel it. And I can even, even as you're talking, I can feel my bones twisting. <laughs> same, same. Twisting. Like my yeah. blood is so yeah. hot and every yeah. pore is open because I'm just and maybe reliving. That's the shame. Yeah. Well, and, I know. And I think when that stuff starts to come up, it activates some of the stories. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and, yeah. And this means that I'm a terrible person. And, yeah. and so much of the time, right, when, when, um, when we think about the times in which we've moved away from how we want to be, that adds evidence to us being awful. And then when we think about moving in the in the direction of our values, then it's like, and then I will be a better person. And it really isn't about becoming a right. better person yeah. or being a worse person. It's just living in resonance with this is how I want to move around in the world. Mm-hmm. I just wish, you know, I have a, a nephew who struggles mildly with drug addiction and Every time he falls off the wagon again, it's like, oh, I'm a terrible person and I wasted your money in rehab and I'm so sorry. I don't even deserve your attention. And I was like, those stories aren't helpful anymore. Right. Because what's right. the mm-hmm. best thing to yeah. do to get rid of that self-criticism? To use. Right. right. Like that's exactly. what makes it go away. Right. right. Yeah. I, that yeah. makes sense. I do these things. Yeah. I'm a bad person. What do bad people do? Do they these use. things. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. just the loop, even the shift of, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you were in such a vulnerable place that you did that again. What can we do to not put ourselves in a vulnerable place? Like a mind shift. Yeah. Uh, you know, a shift. Like I asked him, please, could you see yourself as your three-year-old and just take care of, make decisions for that three-year-old for a day. And, you know, a day, then yeah, build another day. Yeah. And I'm not a therapist, but that felt like <laughs> something I could offer, you know? And most, yeah. most humans, the majority of humans' response to another human who is displaying shame is actually to be pro-social towards that person. So it's actually to kind of approach that person and kind of welcome them back in, try and support them in some way. Wow. The um, kind of typical human tendency towards somebody who is in a place of criticism, whether that's self-criticism or other criticism, is, whoa, I'm just backing away from you. That is from really you. true. Isn't that's it? Really yeah. Interesting. So even yeah. if you're just talking about how could you be in a place with yourself in that place of shame where you're going to access those parts that are, oh, you are suffering. How can we do something to help you in your suffering Mm. versus, yeah, you're a piece of shit. I want to get away from you. I could talk with you all day, Sharma. I know. This has been really wonderful. I feel like I'm learning a ton. (laughs) Well, listen to our podcast. We do this every week. (laughs) You see why I came back from vacation, right? (laughs) Your uh, talk is at Pals at seven o'clock. I think it's 7.30. 7.30? Yeah. Get there Check at the 7. Website. I can't Get there remember. at 7 if you want to see Charmer Shield. Thanks yeah. again so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.